Would you stand now as we read God's word together and consider his love for us this morning in the gospel? We find ourselves this morning in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. In the Pew Bibles in front of you, that's page 909. You can also, as normal, find the full passage there in your handout this morning. Just as a reminder, if you've been with us so far, Acts was written by Luke's hand. It's the second volume of his narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus. You can think of volume one, the Gospel of Luke, as the volume of Jesus' humility. It's the story of Jesus' incarnation, his birth, his ministry and life among us, and his death. Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the second part of the story that Luke is telling, is the story of Jesus' enthronement, his glory, the proclamation of his kingdom to the entire world. That's where we find ourselves this morning in the beginning of part two. And here's a basic question to think about as we process the passage in front of us. The question is this, what has Jesus called the church to do? What has Jesus called us as his people to be and to do? Let's look now together at Acts chapter one, verses six through 11 and get some clarity on the basic purpose for the church. Luke writes, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you be seated? Join me as we pray. Father, we ask for, Lord, we ask for your son in your word. We ask that you would give us Jesus. We ask to look upon him this morning and that you would give us comfort and affliction in all the appropriate ways you want us to have it. And God, once again, would you be with your servant cub this morning? Lord, we, we thank you for the years that you've given us to see Jesus through him. We pray for your mercy upon him and your mercy upon us as we consider now this passage in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I know that you know this, but you are here this morning. You're here. And just for a moment, I want you to consider all the places where you could be. You could still be in bed this morning. You could be lounging on the couch, watching your favorite morning show with with coffee in hand. You could be out for a run or a bike ride or a leisurely walk around the neighborhood. You could be meeting friends for breakfast. You could be beating the churchy crowd to lunch. You could be getting ahead at work. You could be preparing your fantasy football lineup for later in the afternoon. You could be immersed in a good book. You could be sorting through Netflix, trying to find the right movie. You could be at the farm. You could be at the ranch. You could be at the lake. You could be at the grocery store. You could be at the department store. You could be at the hardware store. Where you can't be this morning is Chick-fil-A. It's closed on Sundays. 
But there are a lot of fantastic places you could be this morning, this late September morning, Sunday morning, and yet you are here. For goodness sake, why? Why are you still coming to church with all these other amazing options around you? There are tens of millions of other people around the world making the same questionable decision as you this morning. And so the why deserves some attention because just because a large group of people do it doesn't make it right. Why the church? Why choose the church? I get that there are many practical reasons that animate each of us to come every week. Things like friends and family, reasons that involve tradition, ritual, the longing for connection, for refreshment, for perspective, for guidance. But at some point, the questionable decision of joining our lives and our time and our money together in the face of so many other compelling options, the singular extraordinary reason for the church needs to come into view for each of us personally. We are here this morning, we come to church because of Jesus. Because the risen Jesus Christ has summoned us, has called us to himself. And he has given us a task to do together. As he says here in this passage, is to be his witnesses to the very ends of the earth. I played basketball growing up. That may be hard for some of you to believe after a lot about playing football, but I did. I'll never forget what my freshman coach told us after a particular poor first half of basketball, turnovers, couldn't rebound, missed assignments. We played awful. So we came in at halftime and he said, look, there is too much bad stuff that just happened in that half to even begin to articulate. But lucky for you, basketball is a simple game. I want you to go out in the second half and I want you to score more points than the other team. And then he left. <laughs> it wasn't much of a historic halftime speech, but for some reason, the clarity and the reminder of that basic mission rallied us to play one of our best halves of the entire season. Now, I was mostly cheering from the bench. I don't want to give you any false impressions. But I think at that moment, we needed the simplicity of our purpose preached to us again. Why are we playing basketball? <laughs> to score more points than the other team. Why are you here this morning? To be witnesses to Jesus Christ. To witness to the validity and the reality of who he is in your worship. To witness to the validity and reality of who he is in the way that we do life together. To witness to the reality and validity of who Jesus is. And the mission that he has given us to accomplish that extends outside these sanctuary walls. The book of Acts is the fleshing out of this simplicity and clarity of purpose in the early church. Two things I want you to see this morning in terms of this passage and in terms of what it means to be the witnesses of Christ. The first is this. What are we supposed to be witnesses to? A witness is someone who testifies to the truth or the validity of something. What is the truth? What is the, what is the rationale? What is the reality to which we are called to testify? What are we supposed to be witnesses to? 
And then number two, how does that look? Practically speaking, how does this play out for us? How did it play out for the early church and how should it play out for us in very concrete and practical ways? So first off, what are we supposed to be witnesses to? Grammatically, to what are we supposed to bear witness? Look at me at verse 6 for a clue here. Luke writes in verse 6, he says, So when they, and the they there, are the apostles, or the close companions of Jesus, okay? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what does it mean to say at this time? What is going on to make a point of bringing this up at this time? Well, just a reminder to catch you up in the story. At this time, Jesus has already suffered and died on the cross. The unrighteous in place of the righteous. On the third day, he was raised again after being under the power of death. Raised by the power of God as the victor over sin and death. Then he spent 40 days... 40 days teaching his companions, his apostles, his disciples about the kingdom of God. And now Luke tells us he is preparing to go into heaven at this time to assume his position at the right hand of God, the place of authority, enthroned as God's rightful king over all creation. We call this the ascension. It's Jesus ascending. It's Jesus going up into heaven to sit on the throne of God's kingdom. And the question his followers ask at this time on the verge of the ascension is, will the full restoration that's been promised to Israel in the Old Testament, will that now be a reality? Will the full restoration, will the restoration that's been promised to Israel in the Old Testament, will that now become a reality? Now, I think it's easy for us to miss what the apostles are asking here. This is not a request for some short-sighted political favor. Like they're asking Jesus to make Israel great again. This is a request for the year of restoration, the restoration pattern of the Old Testament to come into view as the kingdom of God comes in full. Now to really understand the question, we have to go back for a moment and understand what full restoration in the Old Testament looked like. The pattern for restoration in the Old Testament sort of falls under the concept of something called jubilee. Maybe you've heard that word before, jubilee. You can read all about the jubilee in Leviticus 25. Give you a primer really quickly. Jubilee was supposed to occur at the end of every seven sabbatical years. A sabbatical year happened once every seven years, so multiply this morning seven times seven, 49 years. Jubilee was supposed to happen in the 50th year, every 50 years. And this is what was supposed to happen in that 50th year when the Jubilee came around. A proclamation of liberty was supposed to be made to Israelites who had become slaves because of debt. So all slaves, everyone who had suffered from great debt, they were all to be free again. It was all wiped away. Land ownership, land ownership that was, that was taken away because of economic distress was to be given back to those families. So all of that was wiped away. 
a year of rest for the land from farming, from sowing, from reaping, was to be enacted so that the land itself could rest. Restoration, rest. The basic principle in Leviticus 25 was that Jubilee was supposed to be the year of restoration. It was the year when the deep burdens of life in a fallen world were to be corrected as far as humanly possible this side of heaven. And if you read Leviticus 25, what the text is asking is extremely socially disruptive. It wasn't a matter of sort of like sanding down life as we know it and rearranging sort of the books on the shelf so that we get them just right. This was major disruption for the sake of renewal. It was like hitting the reset button every two generations for the people of God so that they could exhale and remember what God had called them to do and to be as a community. Now here's the thing. There is no evidence that this ever happened in the life of Israel. We don't know why. Perhaps Israel herself counted it too disruptive to obey. But what is clear is that the Jubilee pattern continued to function as a picture of what Israel anticipated the kingdom of God to look like once her king had come. It was the imaginative picture of what they imagined God to be doing in their midst when he sent his Messiah. Now, what does it have to do with Luke's story? When Jesus burst on the scene in Luke 4, after the birth narratives, the first part of Luke's story, in Luke 4, the first thing that Jesus does before he begins his public ministry is he goes to church. <laughs> and Luke says, as was his custom, if Jesus had to go to church, so do we, right? Jesus went to church. He went to the synagogue in Nazareth, and, and he stood up to read the scroll, and it was the scroll of Isaiah. And he read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. I want you to listen to it. The first thing that Jesus says as he burst on the scene, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He has sent me to proclaim the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what was the year of the Lord's favor? It was the year of Jubilee. Jesus makes that announcement, he reads that text, and then he, he says, today, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the Jubilee is here. The real hope for material and spiritual and social restoration, the real hope that Israel never had the courage or the heart to even approximate and practice, that is here. Because I am the bringer of the kingdom of God. It's important background because in Acts 1, the place we are this morning, when the followers of Jesus ask, is it time? Is it time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? What they're asking is, is now the time of full jubilee? And what does Jesus say? He says, no, <laughs> not yet. It is not for you to know the times fixed by my Father's authority, but then he says this, you go witness to it. That's the task of the church. 
to witness to the year of the Lord's favor as outlined imaginatively in the Jubilee of Leviticus 25. Jesus is saying, go give people a taste. Go give people a taste of what restoration looks like, of what God's kingdom looks like in all facets of life, environmentally, socially, economically, spiritually. Go into all the world and witness to my lordship in a way that no one can ignore the reality that I have ascended to the throne of God, that Jubilee has come. Now, that's really high-minded. What did it look like? Well, practically speaking, the rest of Acts shows us how the early church understood the task of bearing witness to the restorative reign of Christ. For example, the early church understood the task of witnessing to Jesus to be a task of compassion and mercy. If you read in Acts 3, Acts 9, Acts 7, the lame and the dying and the sick and the outcasts are brought to the apostles and they are welcomed into God's community and they are prayed over and they are healed. Restoration meant mercy, enacting mercy. They also understood the task of witnessing to Jesus to be a task of economic justice and material generosity. You can't miss this because Luke's going to kind of put our face in it over and over again that the early followers sold their lands and they held their possessions in common, Luke tells us, because they were concerned that there would be no one who had any need among them. Acts 2, Acts 4. That's restoration. They understood the task of witnessing to Jesus to be a task of, of preaching and persuading others to come to God. You're going to see Paul, as we go through Acts, preach in the strangest of places, in Athens, not using one text from the Old Testament, but using the authority of the Athenians' own poets and philosophers. They believed that Jubilee called them to move out into the world and to preach the reign of Jesus to other people and to draw them to him as well. The early followers understood the task of witnessing to Jesus to be a task of overcoming racial and social divisions and learning to bear with one another Deep cultural differences, even when it hurt. Go read Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, where the early church is trying to figure out how far do we make the Gentiles go before they can become Christians? How Jewish do they have to be to be Christians, right? How do we overcome the reality and the barriers that we live with on a daily basis? Most of all, the early church understood the task of witnessing to Jesus to be a task of remaining uncompromisingly loyal to who Jesus is in their worship and witness in the face of deep hostility. Read about the persecutions of James, of Peter, of John, the eventual martyrdoms of James and Stephen. The church was to remain uncompromisingly loyal in the face of hostility. I just say that to you this morning because I think sometimes in Christian circles we use the word witness a little bit and often we've either sanitized that word or we've overly narrowed it. Witnessing was not just telling people about Jesus, it was living life in such a profound countercultural way that it challenged the status quo. 
by seeking the restoration of Christ as far as humanly possible in the here and now. And it was such a beautiful, radical thing for the world to witness that by the end of Acts, by the end of Acts in one generation, there are churches all over the Roman Empire. At the end of Acts in one generation, Roman elites are already beginning to wonder how a movement centered around a crucified Jewish criminal had gained such a strong foothold in their urban centers. It's because the world had begun to taste. The world had begun to see. The world had begun to experience what restoration, what jubilee really felt like. I want to bring this up to, up to kind of up to our day a little bit this morning. And I just want to share with you a modern example that stayed with me. In June, I went to attend a church conference called General Assembly. It's kind of the assembling of our particular denomination. It was in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I had to leave early that day. I was complaining in my head when I got up because I had to call an Uber driver at 4.15 in the morning, okay? So I called my driver. My driver arrived at 4.15, and in my own head, I'm complaining about having to carry my carry-on piece of luggage the 20 feet from my front porch right to the street, okay? The Uber driver arrives, and he gets out. He's friendly. He's pretty quiet. And he opens the door, opens the trunk, puts my luggage in the trunk, and then I jump into the back seat, and we're off. It takes about 35 minutes to get from my house to DFW. And so there's no one on the streets. It's me and him. It's time to talk. So I asked him some questions, pretty superficial questions. He replied back. He was open and friendly, and so I probed a little bit deeper, thinking, I want to know why a young man in his mid-30s is driving an Uber at 4.15 in the morning. Probably didn't plan life that way, right? So I began to ask, and he told me that he had just gotten married a couple years ago, and that he had just had a newborn baby, two months old. Just a new father, first one. And so I thought, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I can understand. I have four kids of my own. Money's tight, right? He said, no. God's given me a, ba- a great job. Um, uh, he's provided for us. Money's okay. Oh, okay. Well, you must be, you know, you must be saving for that vacation you've wanted to take, or college, or, you know, I don't know, putting something in some fund somewhere that's really important for you to, to get to where you want to be. He said, no, not at all. All the money that I make when we drive, when I drive, my wife and I have decided, decided to give away, to give away. So now my eyes are sort of popping out of my head a little bit, and I want to hear the end of the story. It turns out this young man in his 20s was working construction in Chicago, had a good job doing well during the housing boom. And he found out one day, had some pain in his side, that he had cancer. So he went in and found out that it was an aggressive form of cancer, needed immediate treatment for, needed experimental treatment for it, and so they sent him all the way to, Chicago, to, to Washington State to get this sort of experimental drug. Well, the young man had no insurance, he now had no job, he had no family to care for him. He was sick. And he found himself homeless. He was homeless. For two years, he fought cancer and he fought homelessness. He fought to find a place to live, sick and well, well and sick. And in those two years, it was a Christian homeless shelter who loved him and supported him and nurtured him back to health and shared the material and spiritual and social restoration of the love of Jesus with him. And during those two years, he became a Christian himself. And so now he drives the streets of Dallas from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. every weekday morning before he goes to work. 
And what he does is he donates all that money to a Christian homeless shelter that he helped start out of his own church because he is, he is, um, he is moved to make sure that other men and women in our city get a taste of the restoration that was given to him. Slightly convicting as I've been mentally complaining about having to carry my luggage like 20 feet to the curb just an hour before. And I will never forget that ride. A man who believed in Jubilee. A man who had tasted the restorative reign of Jesus Christ and wanted others to have a taste as well. He was not flashy. Shirt, t-shirt, shorts, disheveled at four o'clock in the morning. As I can tell, or as far as I could tell, he had no extraordinary gifting or innovative ideas. He had a driver's license. He had an old car. And he had the same hours in the day that I had. And he had a deep desire to see others helped in the name of Christ in a way that went beyond what was expected of him. That is something of the attitude of the early church in Acts. Something of what it meant for them to go out. Something of what it meant for them to go beyond. Something of what it meant for them to give themselves away. This is what they understood the task of witnessing to be about. As I was thinking about this passage this week, I was struck also by the dozens of examples that I could reach for this morning here in our own congregation. Even now, I think about the men and women in middle schoolers who have been involved in Harvey Relief, disaster relief, who have poured in hours upon hours recently to see the restorative work of Jesus brought to the people on the south coast of Texas. We can name the volunteers downstairs in our children's ministry who pray and who plan every week in order to proclaim the reign of Jesus Christ to the next generation. There are ministries like ACT, like Mercy Street, like Behind Every Door, Arise Africa. Those ministries are seeking to holistically care for the needs of people around them in ways that speak of the goodness and the lordship of Jesus Christ. I could mention each of you. Every day, you go somewhere. (laughs) Most of you go to work. You wear your baptisms to work. You go to neighborhoods and you go to medical facilities and you go to offices and homes. You go to various places of service around our city and you work. You work. Often covertly, sometimes in frustration. But you work believing that your own labor is not in vain. I want to encourage you this morning as we leave with the challenge of acts in view. Think about your life as a sent person. We are a people who are sent. You don't just go, you are sent. Jesus sends you in the power of his spirit into all the places that you could go. All the physical places and neighborhoods, all the cultural spaces and realms of influence. He sends you. He doesn't send you to bring him there. He's already there enthroned. He sends you instead to tell others about him. Think about it this way. Jesus holds up the deed to every office building, every home in your neighborhood, every school, every shopping center from Oak Lawn to Far East Asia to Silicon Valley. He holds up the deed to every part of the world, and he says, this already belongs to me. Go show people what that means.
Show them what that means. Reading Acts, I'm reminded of something that C.S. Lewis once wrote. Lewis said, if you want to make, if you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I don't recommend Christianity. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. You will get that from the early church. They came by it honestly because they got it from Jesus. And so church, remind us this morning, the gospel reminds us this morning, that we are called to witness not to what makes us feel comfortable, but to the restorative power of the kingdom of God and all of its beauty and all of its challenge. That's our task. That's why we go to church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. We do pray, God, that you would bring more restoration into our lives. God, that we might taste it that we might be animated by it, Father. We pray that you would enlarge our imaginations to see what it means to love others in the way that we've been loved. And to even now, um, Lord, to even now be enacting the year of your favor. We pray, God, that you would raise our eyes to see Jesus, that we would see this is an arrest, that all the world belongs to him, that you have called us to go and to show and to tell. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.